Lazy Project Manager is sponsored by Office Timeline. If you need to make elegant timelines and Gantt charts that clients and executives can understand, try the Office Timeline PowerPoint add-in. Designed to work right inside a PowerPoint, it's familiar and requires no learning curve. And with it, you'll quickly build stunning project visuals and can easily update them on the fly as plans change. Try it for free at officetimeline.com forward slash Peter to see how it makes your presentations look awesome. That is officetimeline.com forward slash Peter. Yeah, we're going to talk about personal delivery, performance, etc. Um, I am known in the project management world, anyway, as the lazy project manager. Since this was a brilliant thing I did 10 years ago, I insulted my profession. And it's been very successful since. And in fact, the, uh, the lazy project manager, which is over there, um, is an Amazon number one bestseller in the world of project management. Clearly, no, nothing spectacular. But it is, it is actually the best-selling project management book that is not a training or a certification book or something like that. Um, and it's allowed me to um, have a lovely life and travel the world, and this is my 348th presentation. Um, so hopefully I'm kind of getting a little bit okay at it. That's the hope, anyway. You wouldn't want to be there at number one, trust me. I've got the video, it's awful. Um, I've written a whole bunch of books. A lot of them are around project management because that is my world. I've worked across many, many sectors, uh, many industries. I have not worked in your world, so this is really interesting for me. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is a combination between two things. It's kind of lazy project manager and lazy winner, which was the kind of follow-up book, which is a more generic approach to personal productivity and efficiency. Um, I'm all of these things, speaker, author, coach, trainer, um, consultant. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy a great mix of life out there. And hopefully what I can share today is a little bit of insights into some of the experience I've had, some of the ways I've learned to work more efficiently and effectively over the years. Because when I started out, I did things completely wrong, that's for sure. So, laziness. Let me explain to you laziness. So actually the concept of lazy project manager came from a combination of two things. I was running a very large group of project managers in Europe, uh, just over 100 project managers across 17 countries. Um, delivering a whole series of uh, projects from small to you know, sort of global enterprise, um, multi-year programs of activity. And I, I noticed something about them. Um, I noticed that roughly, very roughly, about half of them were working on average a fairly typical week. week. Now, projects, like anything in life really, but projects, they go up and down. There are quiet times and there are visit, very busy times. But on average, they all work in typical working weeks. The other half, oh, and, and they were being relatively successful. Relatively successful in what they were doing. They weren't perfect, for sure. We could certainly make some improvements. That was part of my role. The other half were being no more effective, but they were working 50, 60, 70 hour weeks regularly. And so there were some behavioural differences behind that. And I did some work on that to understand it. At the same time, the guy I worked for, who I'd worked for in four companies at this point, turned around to me one day and said, Peter, you're the laziest person I've ever met. I thought you liked me. I said, that's a compliment. He said, you just, you just have a very relaxed way of working. And I just kind of put the two things together. And that was really where the lazy project manager came from. So laziness, I, the term I talk about is productive laziness. Working smarter and not harder. This is a great quote. When I, when I reached this point of deciding this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to write about, I found this quote by Robert Heinlein, the science fiction writer, which is, progress isn't made by early risers. It's made by lazy people trying to find easier ways to do something. Working smarter, not harder. I thought, that's it. That is the heart of it. 
And so I did some research and I looked into this. And there's, there's a number of things, but I'm going to cover a couple to begin with. The science of laziness. Now, we all, we all know this guy, I'm sure, Vilfredo Pareto. At least you know the Pareto principle. Um, the, the Pareto principle came actually from Joseph Duran, who was a management thinker. And we all quote these days, I'm sure you know, the 80-20 rule, yeah, etc. Based on some work by Vilfredo, uh, way back in time, when he, when he looked at the uh, ownership of property in Italy, it's one of the first kind of pieces of statistical analysis, and he worked out um, that actually 80% of property in Italy was owned by just 20% of the population. I suspect that hasn't changed. It might have got worse as far as the ratio is concerned. I mean, you see the statistics in America of three people having as much money as 50% of the poorest people put together, and things like that. But the 80-20 rule was, was evolved by, I said, Joseph Duran. And, and this kind of works, doesn't it? I mean, we can apply the 80-20 rule in many, many ways. For example, in, in most of the companies I worked for, 80% um, of the revenue came from 20% of the client base. That was fairly typical. Uh, it's true of companies like Microsoft, for example. 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their products. The rest of the products are exploratory or investments. Are, they are the future, hopefully. But this kind of works. In your personal life, this is also true. A uh, very interesting fact is that, uh, did you know that we wear 20% of the clothes that we own 80% of the time. I can see the gentleman smiling in the room. Yes, we do go shopping. I love to go shopping, actually, with my uh, partner. Um, and she buys lots of shoes and handbags, and I know she doesn't wear them very often. And I'm the same. It's even, the, the rule applies to everybody. 20% of what we actually uh, own clothing-wise, we wear 80% of the time. So this kind of principle actually works. What has this got to do with uh, laziness? Well, what I talk to people about is that when you are thinking about what you've got to do today or tomorrow or whatever, this is where you start to apply this, this rule. It's about what, what is the 20% that you need to do that delivers the most return on your personal investment? What is the 20% that's most critical? And this is the world of to-do lists. And, you know, we all have to-do lists. Some people are really, really efficient. They have to-do lists of to-do lists. It's quite incredible. But these are typically are sequentially created. Oh, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. You need to do some work on this. You need to understand that. And we're going to do a little exercise a bit later on on this one. But, you know, what is, what is, the, what is the critical thing here? What is the most important thing you should be doing? Because that 20% will deliver 80% of return. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do everything on that list. It just means you prioritise accordingly. And what I tell people is, you know, on the way into work, on the bus, on the train, in the car, maybe over the first cup of coffee, perhaps the night before, think about your day ahead. Think about your day ahead. What is it you are going to do tomorrow? And what should you be focusing your efforts on? What is going to release it? In the world of project management, it's really very important because as a project manager, you need to, you need to focus to ensure that you move things forward to let your team become productive. Because you, as an individual, are just overseeing probably many, many resources bringing about change inside organisations. Therefore, you need to prioritise to make your team, make sure your team is moving forward on the right things you know, and you're not holding things up. One of the major problems I had when I started out was I, I involved myself in everything. You know, I, I, no meeting could take place without me as the project manager. No decision could take place without me being involved. Uh, no conversation could take place. It was, it, was, it was a terrible way of working, I learned because it just meant I was burning so many hours. I was working evenings and weekends, etc., and I was slowing the project down. So from a personal point of view, 
20%, what is it going to deliver? You know, the 80%, what is the priority? So looking at that, and we're going to explore this about what, do you, you know, what is the combination between importance and impact of things? What, how can you allow yourself to prioritize the right things? Because if you do that, if you succeed, then actually you become energized, you are you know, more driven, you're more positive, you spread that amongst your teams and your colleagues, and you move things forward appropriately. Now, there is a challenge. There is a challenge here, I know that, in the sense that uh, sometimes, in that 20%, the things you should be doing, they are the really difficult, awkward things you've actually kind of been trying to put off, you know? Oh, that's hard. I don't really want to do that. I'm not sure how to solve that, etc. There's a great book I love. Uh, if you've ever read a book by Brian Tracy called Eat That Frog? It's a great book. It's very short. Um, and it's an analogy. It's, it's a North American Indian saying that says, if you, you know, if you eat a frog first thing in the morning, your day is going to get better. We can debate at this point whether everybody disagrees with that. But, so what Brian's done, he's taken that, the frog is, is the awkward, horrible thing you have to do. And he, and he has some great tips. Um, you know, for example, if you have a, if you have a really, you know, if you, have a, if, you have, if you have a frog you have to deal with, don't stare at it too long. It does not get any more appetizing. And secondly, if you've got two difficult things to do, two frogs to eat, eat the ugliest frog first and move on. Would definitely recommend it. It's a very nice, simple read, but it's got some great pointers in it. I, I learned something, but I've had the advantage of, of talking around the world, and I, uh, I've used that kind of story because it is one of my favorite books. And I suddenly found myself in a room with 350 French people in Paris, and they were going, I don't know, what's wrong with you? I guess Brian's book doesn't sell very well in Paris, I know in France, I'm not sure. Anyway, 20%, focus on the 20% that's going to deliver the 80%, and then prioritize again, and prioritize again. Keep moving that to-do list. Because if you go in, and if in the morning you think, oh, I've, I've booked that meeting room, I've had a cup of coffee, I've ordered the cabbages online with a cardo, have you really made any real progress? Not, not truly, not really. You haven't dealt with the important things. So that, in my mind, is the science of laziness. Then there is the intelligence of laziness. There's a great character, Helmuth Karl Benhard Graf von Moltke. Moltke was the field marshal of the Prussian army back in the 19th century. And... What he did, and his son after him, is they, they, they restructured the Prussian army into one of the most efficient military forces on the planet. And actually, a lot of what they did is still relevant in the military forces around the world today. The one thing I love they did was they analyzed their people very simply. They said, all the people in the army are somewhere on this quadrant. They are either not smart. In fact, he didn't say not smart. He was much, much ruder. I've been politically correct. Not smart or smart. And they were either lazy or diligent. Hard-working, busy people or lazy people. The people he said, well, look, if they're lazy and they're not the smartest people, let them be quiet. It's possible they might come up with a great idea. One day, they are mostly harmless. Between you and me, I suspect those people were a lot nearer the front line of the Barbie when the Prussian Barbie went into battle. It's a possibility. Cannon fodder, possibly. Anyway, let them be quiet. They may come up with a good idea. Then he said, well, the people who are not very smart and diligent, hardworking, busy, busy people, not the brightest, take them out. They tend to keep an organisation busy with silly stuff. Again, between you and me, taking someone out when you are the field marshal of the Prussian army was probably very simple and involved one bullet. I am not suggesting you kill people at work. No. 
HRE, that sort of thing. You have to deal with them in a different way. But these are the people that are, they are distracted, distracted. They are the people, you know them, you know? You go into a meeting and they've already got 20 pages of notes. They're already trying to change the agenda. As soon as you finish that, you get the most detailed email from them somehow about their ideas. They are distracted. You're all smiling, aren't you? You know them. I love it when I do it in a big group inside a company because I usually say, look, you know someone like that. They're sitting next to you right now. And you see the people going, no, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. More interestingly, this side, Molka said, look, the people who are hardworking and smart, the intelligent hard workers deploy to staff function, staff function, they will make sure all detail is thoughtfully addressed. They're valuable people, but they are not your leaders. Combination of laziness and intelligence promote to leaders, they will know how to be successful through the most efficient deployment of resources. And this is where we should all aspire to. This is where we aim to get to. This is the world of productive laziness. This is the world of efficiency and effectiveness. This is the world of finding the best solution. And I want to talk about that. So, we start with, there's five key questions, I think. When anybody gives you something to do, or you have something to do, there are, there are five questions you should ask every single time. Firstly, do I want to do this piece of work, this job, this task? Okay, first question. Do you want to do it? Because you have to understand your, your mindset. It doesn't mean you're not going to do it, but you know, what is your mindset? What is your appetite for doing this? Even if you do want to do it, do you need to do it? Is the potential result or outcome worth your effort? Yeah, do I want it, do I need it? Um, there's a guy I used to know, um, you know, a northern guy, very frugal, and that was his mantra for everything. You know, do I want it, do I need it? Unless I answer both those questions, yes, I don't buy it. I have to admire him, he owns three houses now and a very nice car. You know, he's, he's far more successful than I am. But in life, we can do the same thing. Do you want to do this piece of work? What is my mindset to this? If I do want to do it, do I need to do it? That's the first two justifications you should do. Once you've done that, do I have to do it myself? Is there someone else who could do it? Is there someone better suited to do it? Can someone do it more effectively? If you do have to do it, then what is the shortest path to success? What is the shortest path to the point of success? So I've validated I want to do it. I've validated I need to do it. I've validated I am the right person to do it. Okay, what is the shortest path to success? And, and that doesn't mean taking shortcuts. It means what is the most appropriate path to success? What exactly is that point of success? Asking that question is critical. At what stage will I be wasting my time? Simple example, someone wants you to produce some numbers, some statistics, some output, whatever it may be, in a report. Is that all they need? I mean, is it really a, an email with three bullet points? Or do you produce a 16-page beautiful report with graphs and diagrams and beautiful fonts and imagery, etc.? You know, is it worth all that effort? It's only worth that effort if it's going to be reusable. That's the counter to this one. It's like, it's the shortest path to success, but actually, can I create something that's going to be relevant in the future and if I put a little bit more effort into it would it actually save me time in the future that's the kind of counter to this but if you ask all these questions then you at least understand what it is you are going to be doing what you should be doing and what point of success is if you don't ask all these questions you are often in trouble because success is an interesting thing. You know, what is success? Success for you? Success for who's asking you to do the work? You know, success needs to be defined. And it can be defined in this way, I think. This is the power of no and the skill of yes. 
There's also a maybe in there, of course, as well. And this is the trouble we have in life. We are often very busy people and stuff comes at us and we kind of accept it openly uh, or, or, or you know, not openly. Things just happen. They just turn up in our inbox or an in-tray. We're expected to do something. This is coming at us all the time. You know, I talked about the to-do list. I talked about prioritization, but we know this, that your, your to-do list is growing constantly. As you sit here in this room, you know your to-do list is growing. You know your inbox is filling up. Someone's invited you to a meeting right now that you weren't expecting to go to. Someone's just asked you to do something you didn't know about. This is happening. This is life. But why do we say yes? Why do we say yes? Because part of the power of this is to say no in a relevant and appropriate way. To say no at the right time. To say no in a considered way. But we say yes for a number of reasons. We want to help others. Yeah, This is a part of our life. We want to help others. Um, we, you know, we're, we're caring humans. We want to support our colleagues, our workmates. So we want to help. There's a fear of rejection um, because we want to be liked. If we say no, you know, if we're that grumpy person in the corner of the office that constantly says no to everything, then you know, we're going to feel we're going to be unpopular. So we want to say yes to be popular. There is the fear of losing potential opportunities as well. If I say no, oh, they, they may never come and talk to me again. They may never ask me again. I get that quite a lot, and I kind of have to balance this a lot because I get asked to do things, I get asked to review books, I get asked to attend conferences, I get to come to things like this, I get to go and do webinars, I get to go and help people, coach people, etc. I get asked a lot of things, and I try and say yes to as many things, but if I say yes to everything, then I don't have the bandwidth for future opportunities either. So it's kind of a balancing act that you have to do. We respect people, that's another reason we don't want to say, we say yes. Uh, out of guilt, oh, if I say no, I'm gonna, you know, just, that's gonna, I don't like that. You know, it's easy to say yes. Fearful of confrontation. I'm just going to say no to you. Oh, God, no, you haven't going to have a go at me. You're going to argue with you. You're going to go see my manager and complain or whatever. There is that fear of that. So there are many reasons. But you know, we can test this. Yeah? How many of you have said yes when you shouldn't or wish you hadn't at all? Be honest. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Saying no should be easy. Kids have this gift. My children can say no. And they don't suffer from any of that other stuff that I talked about. The fear of confrontation, the, the rejection, the guilt, or you know, any of that. They can say no. It's, it's something that we have inherently in us when we're young. And then we, we kind of conditioned as we become adults that that isn't the case. But give me a wave. Come on, give me a wave. Give me a wave. Come on, give me a word. Thank you. Thank you. See? You did it for me. Maybe you buy one of my books. No. He's learning too quickly. Well, you might consider that. You might say no, but you might secretly going to go online to Amazon and buy one of my 19 books. It's possible. Can I have your car and house key? No. No. So you can do it, can't you? You can say no with the right conditions. You can say no, given the right incentive. And that one, obviously, is of scale and the fact. Well, why would you do that, you know, for example? But if there's something easy to give away, you're happy to do it. If there's something that requires a small investment, you can think about it, and you may well say yes. You may also say no. If there's something that's very significant, then you can easily say no. So it's actually in, our, in us, no doubt about that. So saying no uh, in the right proportion, saying yes is key, I think, to this kind of whole balance. Because if you say yes all the time, you're going to get overwhelmed. 
you never say no, you're going to have a problem. But, and, and when you say yes, say yes with enthusiasm. Like, yes, okay, I'll do it. No, that's not too good, is it? I thought about it. Yeah, I'm going to do that. That's great. Fantastic. Maybe. Maybe is a deferred yes. Again, kids, if you've got kids, you know this is the case. You know, if you think, can we, can we, can I have that, can I, can I? Yeah, maybe. Oh, great. What do you mean, oh, great? No. Well, you said yes. No, I didn't. I said maybe. Yes. But that's yes, isn't it? So, maybe is often deferred yes. Example, my kids. There's this concept. I mean, this is a concept that comes from the world of... Uh, uh, manufacturing, stock control, etc. It's available to promise. And you might know this. I mean, if you go, and, if you go onto uh, sort of Amazon or something, you want to buy 20 copies of something and they haven't got them in stock, then you'll get back that you can, you can have a combination. Basically, it says, I'm sorry, you know, we haven't got 20. But what you can have is 20 in two weeks' time or you can have 12 tomorrow and eight will follow on. This is the concept of available to promise. And, it, and this works in the world. This is a way of saying a qualified yes. So if someone comes to you and you're overwhelmed, you can go, okay, I can do that. I can do that. But what I, this is the limitation of what I've got. Right now, you've asked me to do A, B, and C for you. Right. I can do A, and I can do A tomorrow because that's urgent. I get that. I can't do B and C. I can't do B and C until three weeks' time. You are saying yes. You are offering something. Most times, actually, what happens with that, people go, okay, no, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I do actually need it all done in two weeks or whatever. So I'm going to go and look around and see what else can help. But I really appreciate your positiveness and I really appreciate you trying to help. So you've basically dealt with this. You've offered a yes. It quite often turns out to be a no, but you are respected for it. Yeah? You are considering it. Now, clearly, if you can't deal with it, you do have to say no or you kind of have to reprioritize some things you've already got. But this concept of available to promise is really useful because you are, you are being there, you're being very supportive, you're being productive, you're positive, you're trying to help out, you're considering it, but at the end of the day, you're not just saying yes blindly. And that's the problem. You're, you know, you're at a desk or someone comes and goes, can you do this? Um, yeah, sure, 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 leave it down there. You know, This is the problem because you don't actually know what you said yes to. You don't know what the definition is. So available to promise is an interesting technique. Understand what is expected of you. Lesson I learned really early on in my life. I was always a young project manager. I was working late one night, you know, trying to be impressing, impressing the bosses, working late, and suddenly the managing director appeared. I was happened to be at this central hub where they had all the photocopies, etc. there. Um, and, and I was working late, and this, the MD, I've never spoken to the MD before, he came out holding a piece of paper, and he's, he stands there and he goes, do you know how to work this? Yes, I do. Brilliant. And he gave me this piece of paper. And I happened to be, at that point, by the shredding machine. There was an assumption of communication that he wanted me to shred this piece of paper. I, this is my moment. I can... <laughs> He's got to remember me. <laughs> 20 copies. Understand what is expected of you. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. So, he remembered me, all right, but not in a good way. Um, <clears throat> understand what is expected of you. Because opportunity is out there. Opportunity is out there all the time. And we can miss out on opportunity if we don't handle it. You will need to understand our capacity, our capacity for 
doing things. And the problem with, and a great example, if you keep saying yes to the point of being completely submerged in work, but, you know, the next thing that comes along to you could be the greatest opportunity. And you're, you're just either going to have to say no, or you're not going to do it very well, because you're swamped with everything else. You know, you have to be open to opportunity. It's a matter of balancing your time. It's about personal time management. Um, and one way to do this is, you know, what is important? This is a great quote from Stephen Covey, um, the uh, seven habits of highly effective people. The key is not to prioritise what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. Big difference. Big difference. So, <clears throat> what you have in front of you on the table, I handed them out just now, if you want to grab one each, is a very simple table that I found quite useful. If you want to grab it and grab one each, I'd like you to look at it. I just wanted you to do the first part of this to start with. Just do the first part. And what I'd like you to do is to think. I mean, don't, you don't have to come up with ten. But in your own life right now, maybe list down at least three um, of things you know you've got to do. You know, keep it nice and simple, but things you have to do. The priorities or things that are on your to-do list. Just make a note of those first of all, and then we'll talk through the, uh, the rest of the form. All I need is your description of task. I'm going to use some, some examples from my world, okay? So... I've got five things on my uh, what's important list. Uh, I have to arrange the next team meeting, which is overdue. It's been, uh, it's been, it was meant to be done already. I have to reschedule a meeting with a supplier. I have to write, post the latest blog on the project site that I'm working on. I have to re review some notes from the steering meeting that is due very shortly. And I have to respond to requests to speak at an event. Okay, just five examples. These are in a list, and they're in a list because this is when they came, when they happened. This is the kind of sequential occurrence of, oh, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. All right? So there's your very first priority. You know, the most important thing is the oldest thing on the list. All right? Does not mean it's truly the most important thing. Because the second thing you need to do is think about the importance. How important is this task? Yeah? And I'm using a score of one to ten. And I'm saying, well, the next team meeting is overdue. I'm going to give it an eight. No, I mean, nothing is an absolute ten, um, but I'm going to give it an eight. It's really important, and it's all about you know team spirit and all the rest of it. And I need to get this done. Uh, I need to reschedule the meeting with a supplier. Well, it's a supplier. It's important. It's not important. I'm giving it a midpoint of five. Uh, latest blog post. It's not that important. You know, I like to keep things up to date, but it can wait. Four. Review notes for steering meeting. The mid-steering meeting is, you know, in a couple of days' time. I'm not very comfortable walking into a steering meeting without having at least considered notes from the previous one. So that's really important. That's a nine. Respond, respond to requests to speak at the event. Eight, you know, people like, you know, responses. You can lose out on opportunities if you don't respond. Bang. We now have a brand new ranking. The most important one is number four now. The second one is joint, is number one and number five. And then we've got four and five. So... This is my new ranking based on importance. Based on importance. The second part of the calculation is this one. Impact. What if I don't do this? What if I don't do this? What if I don't arrange the next team, team meeting? They're not going to be very happy. Yeah? They're not going to like that. So again, I'm still giving that an 8, uh, but on impact now. 1 to 10, same scale. Uh, Reschedule meeting and supply. Again, I'm giving that a midpoint of 5. Blog post, midpoint 5. Uh, review notes of steering meeting, the impact is it's still pretty high. Yeah, okay, I'll be honest, I have gone into a steering meeting and I've, I've winged it, you know, I've, I've you know, followed along as best I can. It's 
not comfortable, but you can do it. But I'm giving it an eight. Respond to requests. Well, the impact is okay, not as high. You know, I, I should respond, but I might miss out on opportunity. But actually, in the scheme of everything else, I'm giving that a three. There's another ranking. It's changed again. Joint first now is number one and number four. The, the steering meeting and the team meeting. Equal three. Uh, third is two and three, and then number five is five. The magic happens when you put those two numbers together. Because now it's a combination of importance times impact. Importance times impact. Now I think we have the truest definition priority here. And what it says is absolutely number one is the steering meeting review notes. Got to do that. Second is the team meeting. Third is the meeting with supplier. Four is the speaking uh, request. And five is the blog. This is what I should respond to, that combination. Now, interestingly, this kind of gives two groups of ranked activities, two high and three low. And there's things you can do then. For example, say, well, you know, that's a real priority, reviewing the steering meeting notes. I kind of should do it, but actually I have someone I really do trust and I can get them to have a look at it for me to help me. Um, team meeting, well, why not I delegate that to one of my team members? They, they love that, you know, the opportunity to step up and manage something. Do I have to do this? No, there is someone else who could do it. They could help me with these two high-priority items. And exactly, once you've done that, you can identify plans of actions to deal with this. What is it you have to deal with absolutely yourself? What can you get help with? What could be deferred until later on? It's worked for me in the past. I mean, you might give it a go, you might like it, you might not like it, but I think it gives you kind of a different mindset when it thinks about prioritisation. It allows you to think of it... Sort of you know, in almost, you know, in a semi-objective way. I mean, it's always, it's always we're part of, the, of what's going on and therefore we're going to have our, you know, our preferences of what we should be doing, what we think are. But this is something. And it also works in a, uh, a team group meeting, etc. If you get everybody to kind of vote on this, you get some different insights into what is important and what isn't important. Good. Attitude is really important. It's the glass half full, glass half empty thing. You know, we know that people have different views on this. We know scientists will tell you that glass is full. It's half liquid and half, half air. Um, we know management consultants will argue that the container is far too big and they'll produce a very expensive report to prove that. Um, project manager, as a project manager, a lazy project manager, I'd say it's fine. I've got half a glass. I can, if someone turns up with some champagne, I can quickly empty it and refill it. It's great. Um, um, and if obviously if you're in a restaurant and a waiter sees that, he'll top it up and charge you for the full glass. There is no problem at all uh, as far as the world of waiting is concerned. So think about that, the kind of attitude you have. Because change is inevitable, is the joke, um, except for a vending machine. And even that's not true these days because we pay by credit card or app these days. So that old joke's got to disappear. Change happens to happen, has to happen. And for us, we kind of have to escape the comfort zone sometimes with this. Um, this is a, a very simple example of that. So basically, there's, 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 the kind of, this kind of, there's a condition, that this is the current state, there is a desire to change, there is the benefit of changing, but there is also some effective, it's a, the effect of changing. Simple example, um, many years ago, and I'm sure a lot of us have been through this, I had a nice house, the family was growing uh, as, as we ended up with three children, there was a condition which was the fact the house was far too full. You know, the room that I used to have as a, an office to work at home suddenly disappeared as a bedroom. I'm well working on the kitchen table. There was a desire to have a bigger house so the family could grow because they're all very small at this point. The benefit would have been everybody would be a lot happier. Uh, and the effect, effect from that is the fact that I'd have somewhere to work, the family could have their area, we weren't tripping over each other, the kids weren't being told to be quiet constantly. 
So you have to come up with that, and then you kind of have to have a plan, a plan to make that change. Because if you start off with this kind of lack of insight, it's like, I don't know what my problem is. I don't know why I'm having these issues or concerns, etc. You can't do anything. You do need to have creation of some kind of insight into what it is. You need to evolve a plan for that change. And once you've got the plan, you then can implement it. You can't go straight from lack of insight to implementation of a plan of change. This is part of it. And behaviorally, you know, when we talk about being effective and efficient, productively lazy, you know, we have to have that insight of what the problems are. The problems may be, we keep saying yes to things. The problem may be that actually the bandwidth of our role is, is too much for us. Maybe there are weak people on our team that are not pulling their weight. You kind of have to have that insight. And then when you've got the insight, you can start to make some changes and have a plan. And, you know, the balance of change is important. You know, the for change has to be greater than the against change. If it's against change, you know, I work in the world of project change and, and transformation, all the rest of it. Digital transformation is huge at the moment. You know, so against that is always there is a cost, there is a risk to doing something we don't like. You know, if we could, if we could do stuff without projects, we'd definitely do it. We'd rather have the magic wand because projects are difficult and risky. There is pain. And there's also, there's also a lot of hidden things that are very difficult to get out of people. Why do you not want to change? But the four changes, the needs, the problems, the benefits, the implications of not changing. And sometimes the easiest things about change is when it's like a legislative thing. You've just got to do it. It overcomes a lot of things. I do a lot of work in the banking world, etc. So when it's regulatory, it's amazing the acceptance of change at that point because someone's going to go to jail or be fined a lot of money. So you have to get that balance right. And another tip in the area of changing is, is personally changing. Because if you, know, if, if you identify things you'd like to change about yourself, a great way of thinking about it is this, the influence of five in the relationships of six. Jim Rohn talked about the influence of five. It argues that we are influenced by the five people closest to us. So we, we put aside family, because family clearly influences, but five people professionally typically influence the most. And you might want to think about, at some point, what five people do you think influence you in the way you work, the way you think, the way you respond to activities, and, and, and etc. Because if there's someone in, you know, if there are five great influencers, fantastic. Don't, don't change them. But if there are some negative influences in there, think about changing them. Think about bringing someone else in. This is kind of where you have a kind of a coach or a mentor or a role model. Yeah? If you want to change the way that you are performing, behaving, acting, then you may not be able to do this on your own. You may need someone to help and influence you, either directly or indirectly. And if you do want to do that, don't discount the relationships of six. This is the Kevin Bacon game. You know, everybody in Hollywood is six steps away from Kevin Bacon. The reality of these days, socially, with all the social media, etc., we can connect to so many people. You know, right now, um, you don't have to, but I'd be happy to connect to you on LinkedIn if you send me an invitation. I am indirectly, I am directly, sorry, connected to 20,000 people on LinkedIn right now. Beyond that, three steps away, I don't even know, it's a huge number. If I go six steps, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's pretty close to most people on the social planet, it seems, these days. The point about this is, I, when I started out in the world of project management, particularly when I started speaking and writing, I reached out to so many people who I've never met. In fact, not so long ago, I met someone in London who I have been connected to for nearly 10 years. And finally, we were in the same country at the same time when we met, and it's fantastic. But he's been a great help to me, a great mentor to the work I'm doing, a great supporter. 
and I've connected to so many people. So don't be afraid to connect to people. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. I've found that most people are positive. They'll either be very honest and go, sorry, it's come back to the yes and no. I'm sorry, I'm really busy, but you know, I recommend this or person or this, this book or something. But there's a huge opportunity to help you change if you want to change. Momentum is important as well. You need to keep things going. You know, this, it's, it's very difficult sometimes. You know, we're back to kind of the frog eating competition activities that goes on. Um, just keep the momentum going. You know, my approach to stuff when I have difficult things is I just stop. I, I, you know, I, I don't multitask. I think anybody truly does multitask. We're constantly doing little buckets of activity. But for me, if I get stuck when I'm writing or preparing a presentation or something like that, or I'm working on a piece of consultative advice, if I get stuck, I just stop and I go off and do something completely different, for, even if it's for 10, 15 minutes, and come back. That kind of breaks for me. Everybody has to find their own way to keep momentum going. Because progress can be difficult when you're trying to bring about this kind of change. You're going to find resistance in your, in, within, and you're going to find resistance from the people around you. You know, you can't just suddenly go back to work tomorrow and go, hey, I'm lazy now. It's fine. You know, I'm only going to do 20% of the work I did beforehand. That's not right. It isn't going to work, and you will find resistance. So just think about that as well. Um, and that brings me to the end of my presentation. Um, I'm more than happy. I shall be here for most of the day. I'll certainly be here through lunchtime. Um, happy to talk to anybody. Happy to chat offline uh, or later on about these sort of things. So I said, it's kind of what I do. I speak, I train, I coach, present. Um, I'm also uh, looking for non-executive director type roles as well these days. I think that's going to be an interesting evolution in kind of work I do. Um, and I try and maintain my world of productive laziness. So thank you very much for your time. I've been a lazy project manager. Don't forget to check out Office Timeline, the PowerPoint add-in that will make your project timelines and Gantt charts look awesome. Get your free trial at officetimeline.com forward slash Peter. <laughs>